from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. This is Religion for Life. My name is John Schuck. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, sex, science, public life, you name it, it's right here. Today we're going to talk about God and the Bible. But wait a second. Which God? Which Bible? The Book of Mormon? The Catholic Bible? The Protestant Bible? The Urantia Book? Which God? Allah? The Trinity? Krishna? The Flying Spaghetti Monster? How do we speak about Bible and God, particularly in a legal setting? That's today's topic. My guest is Stuart Harris. Uh, Stuart teaches at Appalachian School of Law in Grundy, Virginia. That is correct. And uh, also the host of a program on this radio station, uh, WETS, as well as WEHC and some others, uh, called Your Weekly Constitutional. Welcome. Welcome. For life. Well, welcome right back to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. We, we, we traded microphones because you allowed me the honor and privilege of being on your program. So That's right. To do this. Well, tell me about a, a little bit about what you do as a as a professor. What's your expertise? Oh goodness, uh, I teach constitutional law primarily, and that includes a basic introductory course uh, in that subject, which is a required course for all of our students. And then I teach courses in First Amendment, and uh, currently a course in national security law, which has lots and lots of constitutional implications. How long have you been there? Oh, man, a dozen years or more, I guess, uh, 13 or 14 years now, getting close to that. Yeah, since 2001, so I guess we're, this is my 13th year, right? And I noticed we were both uh, from Princeton, New Jersey. Did some, Indeed. Some I think I, I, was, I was across the block from you. When were you seminary. at the seminary? I graduated there in 92. Okay, you're a youngster, or at least you were a little <laughs> bit. Uh, no, you're a late bloomer. That's, That's what it. you are. You're a late bloomer. I graduated from the college in 83, but uh, the seminary, as you know, is literally across the street. Right. And it has both a geographical and historical rel uh, relationship. And, and I think it was 1812 that they split. Right. I think before that time there was like all, all of one school. It was. I think that my re recollection is that Princeton was founded by a bunch of Presbyterians mm -hmm. and that there was no difference between the college, uh, which was originally the College of New Jersey, and the, and the seminary. And then there was a split. But... Up until I was there in the early 80s, every president of the university had been either a Presbyterian minister or the son of a Presbyterian minister. So there was a strong, strong connection. Now, you have been, um, of course, hosting this radio program, your weekly constitutional. How did that get going? And, and, how, and did you invent the name, by the way? Uh, I invented the name with absolutely no thought of a scatological reference. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always thought of constitutional as having essentially two meanings. So one of them, of course, having to do with the Constitution uh -huh. and the other having to do with a nice, healthy Walk, right? A walk, some daily constitutional. You right. take a walk each day. Obviously. You do your walk. And I always thought a walk with the constitution. What a nice plan words. And then I noticed when I started introducing the show to people, they would burst out laughing periodically. And then I realized that many people to use, use that term to refer to a nice, healthy, uh, shall we say, movement of a different kind. <laughs> and I briefly, very briefly, considered changing the name. And then I thought, nah, people will remember it. 
Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and that started uh, March 2011. Right. We first went on the air in March of 11, but it actually, the beginnings of it went back much earlier. It was 2010, in the spring of 2010, when I first uh, pitched the idea via email to Wayne Winkler, who's the station manager here, and didn't hear back from him for something like six weeks. And, you know, I'm I can take no for an answer, or I can. Indi- <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I figured that that's what it was, um, and then he actually emailed me back and uh, explained that he'd been in a you know getting ready for and then going through the annual spring fundraiser, and that he found the idea intriguing. And why didn't we talk? And then we spoke on the phone, and I only realized after the fact that that was my audition. Okay. You know, you have to if you get this radio right, you got to hear the person's voice. Right. Got And I think we talked for about ten minutes, and at the end of it, he said, "Well, come on down. Let's get to work." Awesome. It's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic program and a very important program. Well, You're thank you. are getting a lot of good feedback, I know. Thank you, I yes. Get, I, I hear it too. Uh, the very people are, it's impressive, really, uh, that, that in our market we've got a show like that. Well, I'll say the same thing about Religion for Life. In fact, uh, I always hear the two of them compared, and I think part of that is that we started at more or less the same time, right? Mm-hmm. You were, were Yeah, you about also... 2012, or January 2012. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you were a little bit later than I was, but I, I hear people mentioning mm-hmm. your show all the time, and typically that's what they'll say. They say, I love your show, and I love that religion show, too, yeah. and, and to which I'll say, so do I. And, you know, there's another sense in which those topics interact, more, more than I really actually thought until I kind of listened to you. You have quite a—religion comes into play quite a bit with constitutional law, doesn't it? All the time. And in fact, you know, the issues in constitutional law are many and varied. And we try to present the full range on our show, um, Wayne and I, but uh, certain issues are more popular or more in the news at certain times. And since the show's inception, you know, during the last three years, religion has been very much at the forefront. All of these Ten Commandments type issues and public displays of religion and freedom of religion and the contraceptive mandate and all of this stuff just keeps coming up. And Mm -hmm. so whenever we do a religious-themed episode, it gets all kinds of hits. The podcast then becomes extremely popular on iTunes. And so, yeah, religion is a huge part of current constitutional law. Again, about your program, because I want to talk with you about an article that you wrote for the Appalachian Journal of Law called Which Bible, Which God, which touches on that. But before I get there, a little bit about your program. When, when again, does it air? It airs on WETS at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, and then we rebroadcast it Tuesday evenings at 8. And it also, I'm very pleased and proud to say, airs on WEHC over at Emory and Henry, and I believe that's at 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoons, and then 6 o'clock rebroadcast on Thursdays. And then we're also aired all throughout Virginia on WVTF's Radio IQ Network, and we even have picked up a station in Michigan, Michigan. that airs it. Yes. All right. And I think they air us at 5 o'clock on Wednesday. So hello, everybody in Michigan. All right. Oh, and, and so if folks wanted to hear it, a podcast. Uh, they can go to the. My, my, I'm underwritten by a James Madison's historic home, Montpelier. And if you go to montpelier.org and just uh, look around, you'll see under the Center for the Constitution, there's a radio website for the show. Um, and so uh, that there's a link to that on our Facebook page. Uh, and so podcasts typically go up uh, about a week after the broadcast occurs. So just Google us, Google your weekly constitutional podcast, and very quickly you'll go to the Montpelier site, and very quickly you'll be able to access us there. And, of course, you can also we're also on iTunes. So if you subscribe or if you use iTunes, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes as well. 
Stuart Harris, my guest on Religion for Life. And the article I wanted to talk with you about uh, that published in Appalachian Journal of Law in last year, it looks like. Right, 2012. 2012. Well, a little over a year ago, right. Which Bible, which God? How, How did this article come to be? Well, this article came to be, as most law review articles do, because uh, somebody, in this case I, uh, perceived a problem in the law, and I have a proposed solution to it. And the problem is that we use the terms the Bible, with a capital B, and the definite article, and God, with a capital G, as if they have specific, definite, universal meanings, Mm. when in fact they don't. And at the very least, this is imprecise, and at the worst, it has some pretty negative constitutional implications. Can you give us an example of of how you've seen this uh, be problematic? Sure. The most egregious examples, or the most common ones, are when some prosecutor will get up and start quoting from the book of Leviticus, or will start espousing this or that uh, typically wrathful passage from the Bible, and such prosecutors get into trouble. They uh, are typically uh, disciplined for prosecutorial misconduct, denial of due process, uh, inflaming the passions of the jury. Uh, those are the ones you will typically see. Mm. But there are lots and lots of other references. I think we documented well over 50,000 cases that use one of these other terms this way, the Bible or God with a capital G, uh, where the problems are a little, sometimes a little less clear. Typically what it boils down to is imprecision, uh, because there are many different versions of, of the Bible, and there are many mm-hmm. different conceptions of God, and also a false statement, whether intentional or not, that there's some sort of religious consensus that doesn't exist. And often, in some of the worst cases, judges will actually try to impose their own particular religious beliefs on the case, rather than interpreting the law. Well, you mentioned that in one of the cases there, uh a 1959 case in Virginia. 67, uh, yeah. Regarding interracial interracial marriage, I think it was. Yes, it was. was, Oh, excuse me. You're right. It was, I think the the actual citation was to to an earlier version of it. The the case came to a head in 1967. It's a very famous case called Loving versus Virginia, probably the best case name in all of constitutional law, Uh because it's the case in which the Supreme Court declared that so-called anti-miscegenation statutes that prohibited interracial marriage, those were unconstitutional. So that's a very famous case. But in the 1967 Supreme Court opinion, they cite the earlier opinion by a trial judge, a Virginia trial judge, who comes out and says some of the most egregious things in in all of constitutional history. I think it's, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something like, you know, God created the races separate and put them on separate continents. And if not for the meddling of man, God's plan would still be in place. Wow. Yeah, he's citing his own particular conception of what God intends and using that to justify a, a law against a constitutional challenge here. That's a good example, not just a very offensive language, but of a judge improperly using his particular own uh, religious biases to reach a conclusion in a case that should be decided on constitutional grounds. And, uh, and some of them aren't quite that obvious, but it's more of a matter of saying the Bible says this when, in fact, the, there may be all kinds of versions of the Bible. A few, think I think, about. yes. And, yeah. then, and then the fact what the Bible is, uh, uh, difference between, for example, just two, uh, a 
a Roman Catholic version of the Bible and a Protestant oh, version yes, of the yes, Bible. Yes. In fact, you mentioned a case that I hadn't was amazed, uh, the Bible riots of 1844. <laughs> yes. Tell us about those. When I heard, first heard about that, John, I was absolutely stunned. But uh, apparently back in the 1840s, I think it was 1844 or thereabouts, there was a bit of a controversy. Um, there was a, a, a very forward-looking policy. They had public schools. Some of the first public schools in the United States were formed in Philadelphia. And at the time, they had uh, Bible readings every morning in the school, and they used the King James Version of the Bible, which was you know, the majority Protestant uh, group in Philadelphia. And the local Catholic bishop asked very nicely one day, he said, would you mind if our Catholic students, and there were more and more Catholics coming to the city in the 1840s, that was you know, the sort of the potato famine era, mm-hmm. there were more Irish people emigrating, would you mind, school board, if we used our version of the Bible uh, for our students to do the Bible readings, and that's the Douay version. Mm-hmm. And this apparently went on for about a year with no great conflict until one day a school board member saw these Catholic Bibles and started spreading the rumor that the bishop wants to take the Bible, read King James Version, out of our schools. Long story short, pitched battles in the streets of Philadelphia with cannon. That's amazing. <laughs> yes, yes. yes, they were shooting at each other with, with artillery. Um, and burning down churches. Wow. And eventually they had to call in the Pennsylvania um, militia and put down these riots, and they went over a period of months. All over different versions of the Bible, right? The Bible. The Bible. And and you and they resolved it in not a great way either. Oh, no. It was, as often is the case, they blamed it all on the Catholics. Uh, <laughs> they blamed uh, it all on the minority, right? Right. Whoever's in power is, you know, wins the battle, and whoever's in power then does the inquiry, and the inquiry in this case, again, gets concluded, this was all because the Catholics wanted to take the Bible out of the schools. Um, I guess the Douay Bible didn't qualify as a Bible. How do you see this happening um, currently, in a sense, or where, where do you see the Bible being misused, or the Bible, there, I just did it just now. Yeah. Yeah, we all do it, don't we? I mean, we talk about the Bible in casual conversation, and we say God in casual conversation. And my answer would be is that I, I'm glad to say we're not having wars, not, no, right. at least in this we're country. Not at least pulling out the cannons yet. In this country, and I emphasize that in other countries, they are having exactly those, that sort of strife. So this is not a purely historical issue. We're very fortunate in this country that we've advanced to a point of religious tolerance and recognition of these issues, that we're not doing that sort of thing right now. And yet we still... Every day, casually, or in court documents, or in briefs, or in arguments in in courtrooms, or in judicial opinions, refer to these things this way, and that is simply wrong. Uh, There are many different versions of the Bible. There are hundreds, thousands of different versions of them, and if, if for no other reason than to be precise, we should specify what we mean. And sometimes it's a rhetorical device, isn't it? Uh, almost a disguise thing. Uh, the Bible has has a has an overarching meaning that may not be clear in the exact as the, as the person says it, but they really might mean um, a way of bringing their ver- version of religion into to have to be able to have more of a stand. I think so. I mean, one of the, the classic uh, rhetorical techniques, and this goes back to the beginning of time, is uh, you know a, a reference to authority. And what mm-hmm. greater authority can there be than God with a capital G or any holy book, you know, with a capital letter beginning to it? And people do this all the time. In our country, even in the 21st century, people will do this. The Bible says this or God mm-hmm. says that. Well, such people, when they make such statements, 
don't want you to point out that there's no agreement on whether, you know, which of these Bibles, uh, you know, is the Bible, or which of these gods is the God. Uh, there are so many different conceptions of God that uh, it, it's probably, in most cases, an innocent misstatement or an assumption uh, that's harmful in and of itself, but sometimes I think it's intentional. Sometimes I think people try to uh, to suggest by this usage that there is much more of a consensus than there really is. Sometimes theologically, I suppose, the the Bible, or use of that phrase, the Bible, substitutes for, again, as you said, authority for God. Right. The Bible says such and such is a sin, or whatever it might be. Right. I, I, think, I think that's true. And in, in, in constitutional law, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to the religion clauses of the First Amendment, there are different schools of thought. And one of them is the so-called accommodationist school of thought. And this school of thought basically says it's not so bad when government and uh, religion mix or when government officials do things with regard to religion or public prayers at public ceremonies, things like the Ten Commandments. And frequently they will make reference to the historical importance of the Bible or of God with a capital G in our history. But if you look at our history, there has never been one Bible with a capital B or God with a capital G. The very reason that people came here was because they disagreed about which God they were worshiping, certainly about major aspects of that God, or which Bible they would use. Another person I quote in the, in the paper is Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. He was talking about why his family came, and it's because they had their version of the Bible that they liked to read, but they had to hide it during the reign of Queen Mary, because Queen Mary was a Catholic, and if you were caught with a Protestant Bible during her reign, well, they might cut your head off, or, or mm-hmm. disembowel mm-hmm. you, or burn you at the stake. So the very reason that people like Franklin's family came here was because there was no disagree, there was no agreement on what these extremely important terms mean. So what is, uh, this be sounding like an odd question, the legal definition of God? There is no legal definition. <laughs> there, you know what? There is no. We, we talk about the religion clauses. There's no definition of what a religion is. Sure. I mean, there isn't. Right. Look, yeah. look as hard as you want in, in the Constitution, you will find no definition of what that means. And so that, of course, the whole point of your paper is here are 50,000 cases in which lawyers and judges educated in constitutional law still talk about God and the Bible. In a way that suggests that there is an agreement or that there is one definition. There isn't, and that's the point. What about, um, I see this on television all the time, swearing on the Bible, do you promise to tell truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Is Is that just television, or does that happen? That is not just television, John. It is it is real life. I have been in many a courtroom where those sort of oaths have been given and taken, and there are many people who think that they are themselves unconstitutional. You, you won't find them in the Constitution. There's only one oath, a very famous oath that's specified in the Constitution, and that's the oath for President of the United States. Um, you know, I, you know, I, Stuart Harris, do solemnly swear that I'll faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, period. That's it. Mm-hmm. But at least since Grover Cleveland, people have gratuitously answered, so help me God. Well, and, and, and that's become part of the, the ceremony. You, know, you actually hear chief justices say to presidents, so help me God. 
Well, that's not actually part of it. The founders didn't put that in Article 2 of the Constitution. In fact, any references in the first seven articles of the Constitution to religion are typically negative. They say there won't be any religious test for public office. So it seems to contradict, article, you know, adding under God or so help me God seems to contradict the very words of the Constitution and certainly flies in the face of the religion clauses of the First Amendment. Stuart Harris is my guest on Religion for Life. He is a professor at the Appalachian School of Law and the host of your weekly constitutional radio program. And you talk in your, and I'm the author of an article called Which Bible, Which God that appeared in the Appalachian Journal of Law in the winter of 2012. And in that, you talk about, of course, President Kennedy, uh, one of the first, I guess, the first Roman Catholic yes, to he was president. And, and, and it Remember, at that time, it created quite a, an issue among some people. Would, he, would the Pope move to Washington or whatever, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff? And, and, and you, you write in there kind of um, an interesting balance between a politician's or a public figure's personal faith uh, as opposed to um, using that as a pulpit for religion. Right. And how, how is that? How would you see that done correctly? Well, I'm going to give credit to a good friend of mine, Mark Osler, um, uh, who is another law professor, and it was it was he who who noted that uh, John Kennedy, in his famous uh, discussion of the issue of religious freedom and how religion would play in his presidency, uh, that John Kennedy talked about a complete separation of church and state. And, and Professor Osler, Mark, actually thinks that he went a little bit far. He said, look, uh, what Kennedy was really saying was that the Pope was not going to be telling him what to do. He's not going to get on the phone every day to the Vatican and say, what should I do about this? What should I do about that? On the other hand, he was not saying that he was going to leave his own values, which were very much tied up with his religious background, um, at the door of the White House. And so Mark Osler has posited a very nuanced view of the role that religion should play or inevitably will play in any elected official. So on the one hand, while it might be inappropriate for a, uh, a president to add the words, so help me God, to the constitutional oath, uh, it's entirely unavoidable and perhaps even appropriate for a president to bring his or her religious beliefs and values and background into the decisions that ultimately he or she is going to make. And that's why it's legitimate for us as voters to want to know about the religious values of any candidate for high office. Now, of course, and what you're talking about when you write your article, which Bible, which God, isn't out to remove religion from the public sphere or from people being able to express their faith, but to recognize that we are a country of people of wide variety of religious beliefs, wide variety of concepts of texts and beliefs in gods, including none. Absolutely. And, and part of the core point of our Constitution is to protect the minority. Yep, it sure is. And look, it's an impossibility to remove God from the public square. God, see, there I am. I'm doing it. I just said God with a capital mm -hmm. G. Um, it's impossible to remove religion. Religion is extremely important to people. Your religious beliefs, whatever they may be, are very important to you. Mine are important to me. And everybody who's listening has his or her beliefs, whatever those might be. And we're going to bring those beliefs to us when we get together as a government, as a, as a populace, and debate the great issues of the day and govern ourselves in basically a democratic, republican form of government. So we can't kick God out, but neither can I say to you that my conception of God must be the one that we all follow. Mm -hmm. 
So I can't get up there and simply start talking about God with a capital G and assume that that means the same thing to you that it does to me, or refer to the Bible with a capital B and just assume that you read the same version that I might read. That's all I'm saying, Mm -hmm. okay? We respect each other's religious differences. We understand that each of us brings our religions to the table, and therefore no one of those religions can be imposed upon anyone else. How do you see with a a kind of an overall picture of of the United States and religion and law. Um, it seems to me in some level that there is a, with a resurgence of religious pluralism, that there's a, a the, the idea of, of cultural Christianity feels threatened in some mm-hmm. form or another. And, and it's kind of, I wonder if, I, I guess I'll put it this way, and you tell me if this is wrong or not. Uh, I, I often see that kind of just being played out everywhere, that, that whether it's the Ten Commandments here or there, that there's a feeling of, of a, being threatened, that the idea we were once in control of this thing, and now it looks like it's slipping away. Well, I've often found it sort of amusing that I have been born with virtually every advantage that a human being can have. I am white, I am male, I'm American, I'm from a Protestant background, um, I'm from a comfortably middle-class background. Um, People like me, and at the moment I'm getting kind of, I'm older, I'm 52 years old now, Um, people like me who are born with all of those advantages in a country where a lot of people had those advantages, or, you know, there were women too, but I mean a lot of those advantages, um, got used to that as being the norm, Mm -hmm. okay? And increasingly, it's not the norm. There are people who are not white. There are people who are not male who are becoming much more active politically and much more powerful. There are people who are not middle class. There are people who are not from a Protestant background. Things are changing, and they're changing with increasing rapidity, and change is always unsettling. It's unsettling for all of us, and that's, I think, where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and the more change comes and the more uncomfortable we get, the more we hearken back through rose-colored glasses to the halcyon days when, by golly, everything was the way it was supposed to be, when everybody looked like me, when everybody talked like me, when we all agreed on the basics of this, even though those days never really existed. We've always had those troublesome Catholics in our country, yeah, even though even though we have to shoot cannon. At, even though we occasionally we shot cannon at them, but right. they were they've always been here. Right. And the Jews have always mm-hmm. been here, and the Native Americans they were here before us Europeans were here, and so it's a bit of a mythologizing of this past where everything was easier because there was a basic consensus. There wasn't a basic consensus. Um, there was a majority of people who shared a lot of traits and who held a lot of power. And that majority is shrinking. It's now a plurality. And uh, and lots of different people of different colors and backgrounds are coming in and different religious beliefs as well. And that's unsettling. And that's the period of time we're going through now. And so kind of the arguments about whether the Ten Commandments should be on the public square or uh, whether or not uh, we get really big over in God you trust on the coins and all of that kind of stuff is, is part of that. It's part of that. And, you know, you mentioned the Ten Commandments. Which Ten Commandments? There's more than one that's version of those, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, it, it, that's the first thing you've got to answer. Uh, school prayer, okay, mm-hmm. or public prayer. Um, which prayer? Uh, out of which book? Um, who gets to pick the prayer? Uh, you know, I've often said I'm definitely in favor of prayer as long as I get to pick them all. <laughs> right. That's right. Stuart Harris, my guest on A Religion for Life, uh, author of uh, an article in the Appalachian Journal of Law called Which Bible, Which God? Uh, exciting conversation you can hear weekly on the weekly on your weekly constitutional as well as your daily 
Constitution. Yeah, we've got a 90-second daily show that uh, Wayne uh, has put uh, right at the very end of Morning Edition, right around 10 minutes to 9 o'clock each morning. And it's just sort of a, an ear bug, we like to say, in the public radio business. We, we don't have time to talk about things in any great depth, but we try to pick interesting issues and at least give you food for thought. Stuart, thanks for being with me today on Religion for Life. This has been a thrill, John, because, you know, normally I sit in your chair and I ask those sorts of questions, and today I get to sit in this chair, and I'll tell you what, the perspective is very different. <laughs> it certainly is. You are on the hot seat. And now time. I hope I haven't said anything silly today. I have to worry until I hear your show. It was great. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook. Hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. Be well.